You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. For a very long time, we have been in a section that is heavy on the teaching of Jesus, things that he himself taught, sermons that he himself delivered, sayings that he himself said. All of that has now come and gone, and now we move beyond that to where all of the Bible leads us, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. I'll read from Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pray, God Almighty, for your blessing now for having read the inerrant and authoritative and binding word of God, this rule that you have given us for life and doctrine and worship. We pray that you would direct our hearts and our minds towards our Lord Jesus who was crucified, that man who hung upon the cross, who bled and his body was lacerated and who died for us. We pray for clarity in the sermon, that the preached word and the heard word would be anointed. We pray for sinners to be saved. We pray that you'd forgive us for all of our sins. And we pray, Father, that you would direct this time that we have together for your honor and glory. That much would be made of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're still on the Tuesday of Passion Week. And um, this, is, this is the week leading up to the death of our Lord, and it began in chapter 21, verse 18, with the cursing of the fig tree. So Jesus curses the fig tree in chapter 21, verse 18, and that was the beginning of the day that we're in. So we've been in this day now for uh, almost a good part of a year in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's been a controversy with the religious leaders that lasted into chapter 22, verse 41. There were seven woes in chapter 23, verses 1 through 36. There was a lament over Jerusalem, leading up to Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem, and the final judgment in chapter 24 through 25. And now we move onward. All of that is behind us. We're coming to the end of this very long day in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we move forward. And we move forward to the cross of Jesus. Everything in Matthew, not just this teaching time in Matthew chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. Not just that, but everything in Matthew has been leading up to the cross. 
In fact, all of Scripture has been leading up to the cross. All of Scripture points to the cross, and all of our life should be centered around the cross. So we move forward to the cross, and we put behind this time of our Lord Jesus' sermons. On a personal note, just very personally, I'm thrilled to be preaching a sermon exclusively on the cross of Jesus Christ. Hopefully all my sermons point to Christ in one way or another, but to actually be able to focus exclusively on his crucifixion is, is, is thrilling for me because this is the center of everything. Everything goes back to the crucifixion, and before the crucifixion, everything led up to the crucifixion. This is the pivotal point in human history, is the crucifixion of our Savior. This is central to all the Bible, and maybe you're here and you're wondering how to become a Christian. You're wondering what is the center of the Christian faith? What is the Christian faith all about? And I'm here to point you to the center of our beliefs today, which is a crucified Christ, a Christ who bled, who shed his very own blood and died for us sinners and hung upon the cross. And maybe, maybe as I've gone through this section, which at, time has, at times has included some really weighty matters of chapter 21 through 25, you think about the seven woes, or the warnings to be ready, or the parables that talk about those who will be cast outside and destroyed. Maybe, maybe there's some arrows that have come at you from the pulpit, and you've sensed conviction and it's cut you. They've, the arrows have cut right into your heart. Uh, likely that's been the case. And, and all of that, all of the arrows that have come at you from this text and the warnings about hypocrisy and coming judgment and the conviction of sin, it should all draw you to this one place, the cross. More than anything, it should point you to the cross. So, so that you leave those times where you have been wounded with conviction and your pride has been cut, and you simply cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, and you're able to look to a crucified Messiah who died for your sins so that you don't need to earn your salvation. In fact, if you try to earn your salvation, you will fail. But you throw yourself completely upon Christ. So the only merits for your salvation, the only way you can be saved at all is by that cross. Everything comes to the cross. Everything points to the cross. And so today, I lift up in front of you the cross, and I point you to the crucified Christ. And I say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is. You want to be saved? You want to be forgiven? You want mercy? You want grace? Look to the cross. Cross. Look to the Son of God and be saved. And so as we think about the death of Christ, I've got seven facts about the death of Christ that come clear to us in our text of today. Seven facts. One, Christ's death is central to all of his teaching. Two, 
Christ died is the Passover lamb. Three, Christ's death leads to triumph. Four, Christ died by crucifixion. Five, Christ's death was plotted in secret. Six, Christ died at the hands of powerful men. And seven, Christ's death occurred at the hands of political men. It was plotted by political men. So seven facts today. Number one, Christ's death, the death of Jesus Christ, is central to all of his teaching. It's central to all of our teaching. Verse, 20, or verse 1 of chapter 26, his teaching ends with movement towards the cross. Look at verse 1, chapter 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, and then verse 2, he talks about the cross. See, when he finished saying everything he had to say, what's the last thing he says? He points to the cross. When he had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is how his teaching session ends. This is how the teaching of this very long day ends. It ends with him going to the cross. Him with his words and then he himself moving towards the cross. I have been preaching through the teachings of Jesus for months now, beginning in chapter 21. And now what's happened is we've moved beyond all of those teachings and we're moving in the direction that all of those teachings move to and that is explicitly the direction of the cross. The, the teaching time has done, has come to an end in the ministry of Jesus Christ. His teaching ministry is now over. This marks the end of it, our text today. And now comes the finale to what it's been all been pointing to, and that is his cross. But, but not just, I don't think in verse, 20, or verse 1 in chapter 26, not just these sayings from chapter 21 through 25, I don't think it's just talking about that. I think it's talking about all his teaching in the gospel of Matthew. Because, because now all the teaching in Matthew's gospel is, is being wrapped up. And we're moving to where it has been pointing for the entire duration. And we've been in this gospel for years now. I think it's going on half a decade, but I'm not sure. I should look. But it's getting there. It's getting close to that. And this is where it's been going all along. All of the teaching in Matthew's gospel, all of the cutting remarks, all of the conviction, all of the hope, all of the comfort, it goes to the cross. And I'll, and I'll show you this. If you look in chapter 16, verse 21, for example, Jesus begins to talk about this. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's all going there. It's, this, this has been the plan from day one. Chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. 
or chapter 20, verse 17 through 19. It says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and, cru- or flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So, so all this has been pointing to it all along. Every sermon, you know, every parable, every woe, every beatitude, right through, this is where it's been going. As J.C. Ryle said, hitherto we have read of his sayings and doings, but now we're about to read of his sufferings and death. It all comes to the cross. It's all about the death of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, the Apostle Paul famously said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Christ's death is central to all His teaching. His death is central to all Christian teaching. Everything goes there. And everything comes from there. It's the cross of Christ. That's our first point. First fact of His death The second fact of Christ's death, secondly, is that Christ died is the Passover lamb. He died as the Passover lamb. The timing of his death providentially identifies him as the Passover lamb. Some some will ask, well, why, why don't we, the Jews in the Old Testament celebrated the Passover, why don't we mandate that celebration today, well, because Jesus is the final Passover. It's all fulfilled in Him. It all comes to Him. And you look at chapter 26, verse 2, what it says is, He's speaking, He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. So He's speaking to them on the Tuesday, and the Passover lamb will be sacrificed on the Thursday evening, which would have been considered the Friday. You know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's the Passover lamb. He he intentionally remarks that his death coincides with the Passover. They happen at the same time. Now, what's the Passover, you might ask? We don't want to assume that everyone knows what we're talking about here. Exodus chapter 12 explains the first Passover. And this is when... The Jews, the Hebrews, were liberated from Egypt. And the the Lord commanded them to paint blood, to sacrifice a lamb, and to take the lamb's blood and paint it on the top of their doorways, by their doors. So that that evening, God was going to send the angel of death to pass over Egypt. And those families that did not have the blood of the lamb painted on their doorways, their firstborn son would be struck dead by God. Those families that did have the blood of the lamb on their doorways, their sons would be spared. And not only would their sons be spared, but they would partake in the exodus towards freedom from the tyranny of the Pharaoh. 
And so the blood of the lamb spared them the curse of death. And not only did the blood of the lamb spare them the curse of death, but it led them into freedom. And so this was a, a memorial feast that happens every year amongst the Jews. The head of the household would pick out a lamb on the 10th of the month, and the lamb would be slaughtered on the first or the 14th of the month. And, and it was to commemorate this Passover in Egypt. The blood on the doorway, the slaughtered lamb, the angel of death that killed the firstborn son of every household except those that had the blood of the lamb on it. The Passover lamb was slaughtered to protect them from death and lead them into liberty. That's what Jesus was slaughtered for. He's our Passover lamb. He protects us from death. And he leads us into freedom. So, so by mentioning his death and the Passover together in the same sentence, the same verse, to occur at the same day at the same time, Jesus is identifying himself. He's taking on the identity of the Passover lamb, the one who dies to save us from death, spare us from the curse, and lead us into liberty. John 12, or 1 verse 29, John the Baptist, one of the first things he said about Jesus is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' blood protects us from the curse of death. Are you covered in the blood of the Lamb? Are you hidden under the blood of Jesus Christ? Because the day is coming again when God will visit this earth with death and judgment. And only those who are hidden in Christ will be spared that curse when the judgment of God arrives. And so, are you hidden under the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ? Are you protected by his blood? There's, only, there's no other way to be protected from death. There's no other way to be protected from the consequences and guilt for your sin. There's no other way to receive forgiveness for your sins. This is it, the blood of the lamb. So are you hiding under the blood of the Passover lamb? That's our second fact this morning. Jesus died as the Passover lamb. Number three. Number three. He didn't just die as the Passover lamb, but his death leads to triumph. The death of Jesus Christ leads to triumph. Note that Jesus doesn't just identify himself as the Passover lamb, but he identifies himself as the triumphant son of man. Look at what it says, verse 2. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. The son of man here, we are told, will be delivered up to be crucified. That's quite different from the last time we heard this phrase, son of man. The last time we heard it was the last time I preached, and that's in chapter 25, verse 31, where it says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. So these are, these are two different pictures of the Son of Man. One is you have this glorious triumph of the Son of Man visiting the world. All the throngs of humanity beside Him and all the throngs of the angels, or all the throngs of humanity in front of Him, the angels beside Him. You have this glorious picture of the Son of Man visiting the world in, in the previous text, and then here you have the Son of Man being handed over to be killed like an animal, like a lamb for the slaughter. 
So these are two different pictures of the Son of Man. And in fact, the phrase Son of Man, the term Son of Man, is something that is used to label the triumphant, glorious Messiah in the Old Testament. But yet, this is the same Son of Man. And I think the disciples got confused with this sometimes, and I think sometimes we get confused with it too. First comes suffering, then comes glory. His death led to triumph. First comes death, then comes triumph. The vindication comes after the suffering. The vindication of Christ comes after the suffering. Before his exaltation and return, he has to suffer and die. Christ's death leads to triumph. And this is the way it works in believers' lives. It's the way it's always worked. The Christian will not taste glory without sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I think the church misses this. I think we need to be liked and praised and accepted by the world, but the reality is you taste the joy and the sweetness of sharing in His glory when you taste the bitterness of His reproach. But you must taste the bitterness before you taste the sweetness. Christ's death leads to triumph. That's our third point. Third fact about His death is His death leads to triumph. Fourth, fourth fact about Christ's death. This is very important. We can't assume that everyone knows this. Christ's death was by crucifixion. His death was by crucifixion. His suffering and his death was to be by crucifixion. This is the second time he said this. He says it in verse 2. He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is the second, at least the second time in Matthew he said it. The first time was in Matthew 20, verse 18 through 19. And at this point, it's a sure reality because now the plan is being hatched. In fact, the, the little phrase there, will be delivered, in the Greek New Testament, it's actually, it should be a present. So I think the ESV translated as a future, will be delivered, as opposed to, as it should translate as, is being delivered. Translate it for, because it's easier for us to read, perhaps, but the reality is, is this is a present verb in the Greek. So if you want to read this literally, it would say the Son of Man is being delivered up to be crucified. Why is he being delivered? Because this is now it's sure. Now it's certain. Now we've reached the point of no return. There is no way to abort this mission. It's in motion, and now you've reached the place where there, there is no eject button, and the Son of Man is now, right now, as he is speaking, being delivered to the crucifixion. The plot is being hatched, and, and we'll see in a moment that verse 3 through 4 actually coincide in timing with verses 1 through 2. So Jesus telling his disciples that the Son of Man is being delivered to be crucified is happening simultaneously with the chief priests and the elders plotting his crucifixion. The ball is now in motion. As he says these words, the plot and the plan is being hatched. It's being hatched. It is being delivered. Crucifixion, by the way, as we talk about Christ's death was by crucifixion, crucifixion was the Roman instrument of torture. The Romans were smart people, and 
Uh, they knew how to kill someone. They knew how to torture someone. And, and this mode of killing someone was developed specifically to torture them into death. So the arms were outstretched on the horizontal plank. And the hands were nailed as the arms were outstretched on the horizontal plank. And the feet were nailed to the vertical plank of wood, the cross. And the victim, in this case Jesus, was, he wasn't the only person crucified. They, this is how they dealt with criminals, they crucified them. Jesus was, was hanged on that cross under the hot sun. And in order to breathe while on the cross, he would have depended upon his shoulder muscles to, to picture him, lift his body up, lower his body so he could breathe, so he could inhale and exhale. And so any of you, I remember back in school when I was in grade one, someone getting in trouble in grade one, the teacher would make them stand there with dictionaries, right? It didn't take long for the shoulder muscles to give in. It was painful. And if anyone has ever done the military presses, right, weights, like, like how, much, how much can you wrap on 50 pounds? But, well, they, we're talking about your whole body weight here. Up and down, up and down, up and down. And that's the only way to inhale and exhale, inhale and exhale. To be able to breathe, you depended upon the ability to lift the body up and down with a lacerated back. His back has been, the, the, the organs and bones and muscles of his back are exposed because his back is lacerated now at this point with a rip or a, a whip. And his, his back, his open wounds, flesh wounds in his back are chafing against the wooden cross as he breathes in and breathes out and lifts with his shoulder muscles. And by the way, as his, as his open flesh wounds are chafing against the cross and he's breathing in and breathing out and his shoulder muscles are, are wearing out, all of the weight is fixated upon the piercings in his hands and on his feet. So it's not just the shoulder muscles, it's not just the lacerations in the back, it's the wounds in the hands and the feet that are rubbing against the nails under the hot sun. This is crucifixion. It was invented by the Romans to torture people to death. Eventually, the crucified individual would likely die by asphyxiation as the shoulder muscles wear out. The body wears out and he is no longer to support himself, able to support himself to breathe. The lungs collapse and the oxygen doesn't get to the brain. It took time though. This is how he died. Look at what it says. This is what they would have pictured in their minds. As Jesus says in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's the picture. That's how he died. Why such a terrible death as the Lamb of God to be crucified? I think John Bunyan captured it well with his statement. Man should have been pierced with the spear of God's wrath, but to prevent that, Jesus was pierced both by God and men. Man should have been rejected of God and angels, but to prevent that, Jesus was forsaken of God and denied, hated, and rejected of man. Why the death by crucifixion? He offered himself up as the atonement for our sins. 
You look at that man upon the cross and you hear about the crucifixion and the pain and the agony that our dear and precious Savior suffered. And what you ought to know in your mind is, is that should have been me. And that should have been you. That should have been us suffering in hell. But instead, the Lord Jesus willingly mounted the cross. And there he is. He died in our place. But this is why I say on a regular basis, look to Jesus. There's no other way to be saved. You can't find forgiveness anywhere else. There's no other true Savior. It's only Jesus. So come to Jesus and look to Jesus and believe in Jesus and receive forgiveness for your sins. He died by crucifixion. Crucifixion. That's the fourth fact of his death. Here's the fifth fact of his death. Fifth. Christ's death was plotted in secret. It was a secret plot. Verse 3. Then. That's important. The word then indicates likely that the plot occurred simultaneously with what he was saying. As he was wrapping up these last words of his teaching to point to his crucifixion, the plot to murder him was hatched. Exact same time. Then. And it occurred where? Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. The palace of the high priest is where the secret plot was hatched. Now, when it talks about the elders of the people and the, the chief priests, this is a portion of the Sanhedrin. It's not the whole Sanhedrin. It's a portion of it. And the typical place that they would gather to deliberate and plan and plot things would have been on the south side of the temple court, on the temple mount. That's where their official gatherings would take place. People would know that they were there. They'd be gathering to do government business. These, the Sanhedrin was considered the supreme court of Israel. They were, the, they were in charge of civil and religious matters. And they don't go to the temple court. They don't go to the south side of the temple court. They go to the palace of the high priest. And by this time, Jesus' teaching is done. The day's coming to a close, so it's dark. It's nighttime. And they slip away from the temple into the palace of the high priest. And what is this in a reaction to? Because remember what's just happened. Jesus has just wrapped up his teaching. He's overturned the tables in the temple. He's explained the judgment that's to come upon Jerusalem, then a judgment that's to come upon the whole world. He's pronounced seven woes upon the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. And so them slithering away into Caiaphas's palace is their reaction to his preaching. Don't think that they crucified Jesus because he was just a nice guy going about his business. They crucified Jesus because he rattled their cage, especially on that one very long day. He rattled their cage. And they slithered away from the temple into the palace of the high priest immediately after his sermon to plan how to kill him. And by the way, 
Before I move on and talk about this secret plot, I want to really drill down on the fact that this is a reaction to his preaching. This is a reaction to him pointing out their sin and calling for repentance. How do you react when your sin is called out and it's named? How do you react when it's called out from this pulpit? How do you react when somebody you love sits you down and calls out your sin and your error? Because if you react in anger and rebellion, that's exactly the way these men reacted. Just know that you find yourself instead in the same stead with the chief priests and the elders going off angry with Jesus. You say, well, I didn't plot to crucify him. What do you think contributes to his crucifixion? Your sin. What these guys should have done when they were confronted with these arrows from Jesus' mouth, what they should have done is they should have folded and repented right there and cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's not what they did. They fought and they bucked and they got angry and they thought, how dare he? And they slithered away into this dark place to talk about him and plot about his death. Ask yourself, who are you in this story? Who are you when confronted with truth, sin? Well, it goes on. It says, it's not a full gathering of the Sanhedrin. It was the chief priests and the elders. If it was to be a full gathering of the Sanhedrin, they would have brought in the lawyers, the scribes. But they didn't bring in the lawyers, or also known as the scribes. They just brought in the chief priests and the elders. The chief priests and the elders went to plot the crucifixion. It's not till later in Matthew that they bring in the lawyers because the lawyers aren't there to help them to deliberate the legality of the crucifixion. The lawyers are simply there to bend the law to legalize the crucifixion, at least make it look legal. So they come up with a plan. This is what we got to get done. This is what we got to get done. This is what we got to get done. And then later they bring in the lawyers. Why do they bring the lawyers in later? Because the lawyers aren't servants of the law. The lawyers are the servants of the agenda of these wicked men. It's a big difference. They are there to manipulate and twist the law to serve evil agendas. So this isn't a full gathering of the Sanhedrin. This is a secret plot whereby the chief priests and the elders gather together under Caiaphas's direction to figure out how to best kill Jesus. And once they get the plot hatched and figured out, then they bring in the lawyers, and the lawyers give them their official stamp. Yes, of course, this is legal. Now it's official. The word gathered there is interesting in verse 3. It says, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered. This was a secret plot. They gathered. What does that mean? It's a passive word. A passive verb indicating that it's very likely that Caiaphas himself invited them to his palace. So you picture Jesus' teaching. They're getting livid through his teaching. Caiaphas sees how mad they are. And Jesus leaves the temple. And what does Caiaphas do? He says, hey, guys, let's, let's go over to my place. So we'll sit down. We're going to talk this through. And we're going to get this guy taken care of. It's a sneaky Backroom deal. 
And it's done in stealth. Verse 4, we, we have, we're tinted at that. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth, which one commentator indicates it's deceit, cunning, treachery, as they would trap a wild beast. This is exactly what Psalm 2, verse 2 talks about, where it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2 is being played out. And all of this is a direct reaction to Jesus' teaching session earlier on in the chapter. His death was plotted in secret. You, look, listen to me. If you do things in secret, why do you do things in secret? Because you feel guilty. You know it's wrong. If, if, if you're sneaking around on your parents, why are you doing that? Because you know it's wrong. You're, you're acting like these guys, right? If you're lying about things, why are you doing that? Because you know it's wrong. You're acting like these guys. You don't want people to see it. But the interesting thing is, is God knows and he sees it because he wrote it in this book. So God knew what was going on. They, they plotted in secret. Things that are plotted in secret never, ever turn out well. They don't turn out well. Not only was Christ's death a secret plot. That's our fifth fact. Here's number six. Christ's death, number six, was plotted by very powerful men. These men were high and mighty. It says that the chief priests and the elders were part of the Sanhedrin. We talked about that. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Judea. They had religious and civil powers. And it came under the, set, the very center of this plot is this dark creature by the name of Caiaphas. It says, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. He was a wicked man. And he was the unifier of the plot. Leon Morris says that he acted as the chief representative of the nation. He was elected by the ruling class. Caiaphas, this chief priest who was at the center of this plot, this very powerful man, he oversaw all the sacrifices in the temple. At this time of the year, there were thousands of sacrifices going on. There were millions of people that had visited Jerusalem for the Passover, sacrificing thousands of animals. He alone could enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple. Nobody profited more off the sales of temp temple merchandise than he did. So when Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, it was a direct shot at all the priests, but specifically at Caiaphas. And not only did he oversee all the sales, not only did he oversee all the sacrifices, he oversaw all the priests. He had married the daughter of the previous high priest, and so he was very well connected politically. He was very well connected religiously. And so if you want to think of a supreme figure, a great figure, a very powerful figure in religion and in politics in that day in Judea, you thought of Caiaphas. And he outmaneuvered a lot of people because during his time, they didn't last very long as the high priest in Israel because of how politically volatile it was. He lasted longer than any of them. So he was a very smart, he was very cunning, and he was very powerful. Christ's death was plotted by powerful men. The combination of all of this religious and political power in Israel zeroed in with a laser beam to execute Jesus Christ. It all came together for that one moment. All of this power. 
And the darts that were fired from his mouth into their hearts, into their consciences, they were aimed at them. Well, apparently they hit their target. But unfortunately, it didn't bring about repentance. Instead of bringing out repentance, they lashed out on Jesus Christ and meant to kill him. And this ought to tell us, by the way, that an effective Christian ministry will upset people in the highest echelons of power. This is the way it goes. People don't like to be told that they're wrong. They don't like to be called on their hypocrisy. And Jesus called them on their hypocrisy. So the highest levels of power plotted his death. That's our sixth fact. Number seven, finally. Finally. Number seven, seventh fact. Is Christ's death wasn't just at the hands of powerful men, but they were very political men. The most dangerous types. The most dangerous types of men are not the powerful men. It's the political men who get power. When I say the political men who get power, I'm not saying politicians per se. I'm saying men who don't operate on principle, who operate on po politics. They, they, they stick their finger in their mouth, they wave it in the air, and they figure out what way is the wind blowing. Those are the most dangerous types of people. You give those people power and they're dangerous. Because they're pliable and they're manip they, they can be manipulated and they'll manipulate other people and they'll try and use people to advance their ends. These were political men who had lots of power. Look at how they act in verse 5. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. See what's motivating? They, they have their agenda, but they're going to figure out their way to get it with their Machiavellian politics. Let's, let's just get the people where we need them so we can get what we want. And by the way, you contrast them. This is supposed to be contrasted with Jesus. What have we learned about Jesus, especially over these last few chapters? He's anything but political. He, he just backs up the truck and delivers the goods. Here they are, take him or leave him. These men are political. They're trying to figure out which way the wind's blowing and what they can say, what they can get away with, what they can't get away with. They're wondering if they're going to upset the crowd. Jesus is like, man, I'm just delivering the goods, and if the crowd gets upset, they get upset. And he clearly upset the crowd. Political men. Political men, this was the Passover week. There were two million people likely, maybe two and a half million people who had visited Jerusalem just for that week to participate in the Passover sacrifices. And so they're afraid, verse 5, not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. They don't want to make the people mad. And we've seen this with these guys before. If Matthew does anything, he condemns this type of thinking. And by the way, this type of thinking is so prominent in the places of power in this country this type of thinking is so prominent in churches. It's so prominent in places of business. It's people who will not operate on the basis of principle. They're political men. They attain power with politics. And then they keep their power with their politics. They're dangerous people. Matthew warns of this. Look at like chapter 21, verse 46. It says, And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. Political men, not principled men. Chapter 14, verse 5. What do we learn about the leaders? And though they wanted to put him to death, speaking of John the Baptist, he feared the people. 
And then you see, like I just said, how it's contrasted. Their mentality and their way of talking, their greasy little ways are contrasted with Jesus' ways. As I just noted, and as you see very clearly at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 28 through 29, where it says, And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. True Christian teaching cuts through all the nonsense. You get right through it. These men were political men. They weren't no-nonsense men. They weren't straight shooters. And in days when political men seem to dominate, the men who shoot straight are the ones that get in trouble. And that's what happened with Jesus. The worst types of people in power are the cowards. They're the most dangerous, the cowards. These men were cowards. They had power, but they were cowards. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. They love their positions more than the truth. They'll bend the truth, twist the truth, lie. They won't, they won't repent. They'll try to cover over their errors. You know, you know it's a mark of humility and godliness. If you're, if you're called on something that you've done wrong, to just admit it and fold. Yep, well, I was wrong. These men can't do that. What they should have done when they heard Jesus teach is they should have folded. They didn't fold. And how many people want to be confronted with error and they just fight and fight and fight and fight and fight and fight? They're political people. They want to protect themselves. They want to protect their own interests. They want to protect their own reputation. Somebody in the church told me two weeks ago, three weeks ago, about, this is a good story, by the way. It was about a church in northern Ontario that had, that had complied during the lockdowns. But then after it was all said and done, the leadership realized they were wrong. And what did they do? Instead of covering their errors, they repented to the church for compliance. Okay? That, that, those are the type of actions that God blesses. That needs to be honored. But, but that's not what these men do. There, there's not a repentant bone in their bodies. The more they're confronted, the more they buck at the truth. And, and this is how he dies. This is how he is crucified. It's this mass amount of things that just kind of lined up, and that was it. Christ's death essential to his teaching. Christ died as the Passover lamb. Christ's death leads to triumph. Christ's death was by crucifixion. Christ's death was plotted in secret. Christ's death was plotted by powerful men, and Christ died at the hands of political men. All of that. It all points to the cross. It all comes to the cross. The teaching time in Matthew is over, and we're at the crucifying time. Where do you stand in relation to the cross? Have you been redeemed? Are you trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ to save you? Or are you fighting it? And if you're fighting it, I invite you to come to the cross. Repent of your sins, be forgiven, and have everlasting life. The cross is really the beginning of life for the Christian.